Flannery O'Connor and the Grotesque Communion of Saints with AMI Senior Fellow Deal Hudson. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast, a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute and home of the Magnus Fellowship, where you, yes, you can study in live, interactive, and online courses under the light of great texts and under the tutelage of great professors, a ragtag group of scholars we call the Senior Fellows. One of those who's been on with us from the very beginning, doing a great job in the fellowship, Dr. Deal Hudson. He's taught now three courses in the fellowship, each of them fantastic. And this one is is particularly special. It's on somebody who's near and dear to my heart, Flannery O'Connor, really the dispeller of pietism. And, and in this lecture, you're going to hear something beautiful from her on the grotesqueness of the communion of saints, which is kind of a funny way to think of things. Uh, but I'll, I'll save that for the lecture and the discussion. It's really a good one. Before we do that, I want to thank you personally for giving us a five-star review on this podcast. Thanks for sharing the good word about the fellowship with your friends. It goes a long way for us. Uh, so thank you. We could not do this without your support, your generosity, and you getting the word out. That's that's how we do it. So thank you, magnusinstitute.org, to become a fellow today. Here's Dr. Deal Hudson on Flannery O'Connor. I want to start today with what I think is the most powerful nonfiction piece of prose that Miss O'Connor wrote. That is her introduction to the uh, book Memoir of Marianne. This this may be very familiar to you, uh, but I want you should you should know about it because there's something about this piece of writing that gets to the heart of of who Flannery is and what she you know what what world she inhabits what what's her vision better better i think is good or better than anything else that she wrote now how many of you are familiar with this introduction to this book, raise your hand. Okay, just a couple. I'm I'm glad for that because this gives. I mean, I'm I'm very privileged to introduce this to you because this is something like this is the kind of writing that changes lives. And uh, the uh, the background is this: in 1960 she received a letter from the Sister Superior of the uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Help Free Cancer Home in Atlanta run by the Hawthorne Nuns. Now the Hawthorne Nuns are, uh, were created by the Sister Fanny Hawthorne, Dominican Nun. And they placed, started placing people, uh, centers around the country to help those who were terminally ill. Now, I myself was confirmed and baptized at this place in 1985. Uh, Monsignor Richard Lopez, who was then father, wanted me to, because he knew how much I cared about Flannery, wanted me to uh, 
come into the church at a place that uh, was so dear to Flannery O'Connor. And uh, I can remember, I can relive that moment this very day. What The story behind it is that in 1949, some uh, a couple brought their three-year-old daughter to the sisters because they, they felt overly burdened in uh, taking care of her. She was supposed to die within a, uh, maybe nine months, terribly disfigured. She had a huge tumor on her face. She was... She was a dwarf. You know, one half of her body was horribly disfigured. She was hard to look at. I was going to put up a picture of her, but I decided, no, I don't want to make an exhibition of it. You just have to kind of believe it. And But this, this young girl had lived nine years beyond when she was supposed to die. And during that time, had had a huge effect on the sisters and everyone else, her joy her complete acceptance of her condition here, you know, immediately you think of the hermaphrodite, right? Uh, From temple of the Holy ghost, her complete and utter love for uh, the sisters and for everybody that came uh, to stay with them. And the sisters wanted Flannery to write the story of Marianne and Connor, as we know, was allergic to pious, you know, everything turns out right in the end kind of stories. And she said, no, but I'll be glad to edit uh, anything you send me, thinking she would never hear from them again. Well, she gets a manuscript in the mail and pictures of the girl. And it was the combination of the manuscript, but actually the pictures of the girl that made her want to uh, offer to not just edit the manuscript, but write this short 16-page introduction. And uh, uh, it was published. I have first editions of this are fairly common and not expensive. Uh, But this is the uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Kuhady first edition of a memoir of Marianne by the Dominican nuns who took care of her. And uh, so I have a few excerpts here that I'd like for y'all to help me read. Dave, would you read the one that uh, begins patient visitors, sisters? Patients, visitors, sisters, all were influenced in some way by this afflicted child. Yet one never thought of her as afflicted. True, she had been born with a tumor on the side of her face, one eye had been removed, but the other eye sparkled, twinkled, danced mischievously. And after one meeting, one would, never was conscious of her physical defects, but recognized only the beautiful, brave spirit and felt the joy of such contact. Yeah. And in another place, she calls the tumor uh, the mark of the grotesque. So, and in fact, she says, in meeting the nuns to discuss. Uh, the book, she got a, a even deeper understanding of what grotesque meant. We're going to go back to that again today. Uh, Teresa, read the She Fell Into the Hands. 
She fell into the hands of women who are shocked at nothing and who love life so much they spend their own lives making comfortable those who have been pronounced incurable of cancer. She fell in the hands of women who sh- who stopped. I'm sorry, that's my typo. Who stopped at nothing and who's whose own love of life was so much that they spend their own life. Can I just, that's so great. So she went to meet with sister Evangelista, the sister superior. And here she came back from it. She wrote this about the meeting. Go ahead, Teresa. This opened up for me a new perspective of the, on the grotesque. Most of us have learned to be dispassionate about evil, to look it in the face and find as often as not our own grinning reflections with which we do not argue, but good is another matter. The modes of evil have to be satisfied with a cliche or a smoothing down that will soften, soften their real look. When we look into the face of good, we are liable to see a face like Mary Ann's full of promise. So we look at our own reflections and with which we do not argue. Uh, But when we look into the face of Mary Ann, we see hope. Um, I once wrote a book about the history of the idea of happiness. And one of the best quotes that I used in the book was by the French novelist Henri de Monterland, who said that happiness writes white, meaning that happiness, when you try to write about happiness, uh, there's no evil to write about, there's no failure, there's no fracture, there's no uh, tragedy. What do you write about? And I use that against the opening of t- famous uh, opening to Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Happy families are alike. What do you write about? Unhappy, fa- unhappy families are unhappy each in their own way, which means there's an endless uh, uh, amount of material for stories, for novels. Now, uh, Alex. You read this and pay, pay, pay attention to the bolding of the next one, okay? You have stared at good long enough to accept the fact that its face, too, is grotesque. That in us, the good is something under construction. The modes of evil usually receive worthy expression. The modes of good have to be satisfied with a cliché or a smoothing down that will soften their real look. When we look into the face of good, we are liable to see a face like Mary Ann's, full of promise. That's actually a fuller version of the quote that we just read. But I love the idea that that in us, the good is something under construction. I think I think we're going to see a little of that uh, in every story we read today. I will read the next one because I was amazed when. Uh, I read Walker Percy's Thanatos Syndrome, which I consider one of his very best novels. It was his last novel, where he also said tenderness leads. He had the, the preacher in his long sermon about life say tenderness 
leads to the gas chamber. And uh, so here is, and this is also the answer to what's called emotivism in ethics, which was uh, championed originally by G.E. Moore, a Brit, and uh, who uh, associated value with emotion, particularly positive emotion, uh, as did a lot of the Scottish Enlightenment uh, moral philosophers. But here, here's a quote that I think is as powerful as anything in Flannery's nonfiction writing. One of the tendencies of our age is to use the suffering of children to discredit the goodness of God. And once you have discredited his goodness, uh, and once you've you are done with him. In this popular pity, we mark our gain in sensibility, sensibilite, in other words, feeling states, right? And our loss of vision. That is the vision to see beyond the surfaces of things, beyond the, beyond the grotesque, and into the, the reality of distances. Remember, Flannery called herself a, rea a realist of dense distances. If other ages felt less, they saw more. Even though they saw with the blind, prophetical, unsentimental eye of acceptance, which is to say of faith. In the absence of faith, this faith now, we govern by tenderness. It is a tenderness which long since cut off from the person of Christ is wrapped in theory. Why she didn't like intellectuals. When tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, its logical outcome is terror. And uh, I'm not sure what was in her mind when she wrote that, but there are so many examples. The example of Stalin and Mao uh, come to mind. Those who, of course, the great novel, Brave New World, uh, by a former communist turned uh, anti-communist, where the populace is promised happiness, uh, is promised uh, good lives, all you need to eat, housing, uh, you know, good society, but actually suffer more than they did under monarchies or dictatorships. Uh, um, actually, the the monarchies that they suffered under before, at least there was some care that filtered down through the feudal levels. Whereas the dictatorships that were set up by Mao, Stalin, and Hitler too, uh, were had no concern whatsoever for human life and the fact of suffering. Uh, the very last paragraph uh, is, uh, I want, uh, Anne Roundtree, would you read that one, the action? The action by which charity grows invisibly among us, entwining the living and the dead, is called by the church the communion of saints. It is a communion created upon human imperfection, created from what we make of our grotesque state. So, I'm going to take a moment to get y'all's uh, 
reaction to some of those quotes. Uh, to me, I mean, she wrote this in 1960, was published in 1961. Yet the path that she's criticizing, the way of tenderness detached from the person of Christ, uh, the way of growth and sensibility and loss of vision, is precisely where we, we've gone the last 51 years, geez, and are still going uh, at a faster rate. Because what are the cultural elites that promising everybody now? You know, if you get rid of Christianity, we won't have racism, right? If you get rid of Christianity, you won't have prejudice against uh, homosexuals, lesbians, and trans people, and whatever else they've come up with since, you know, the last two days. Um, so um, I'm going to let Ron, you start. What's your, what is your thought on, on that, that, the way she thinks in reaction to the story of Marianne? Um, I don't know. I, I've uh, not really digested it yet. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think in general, Flannery O'Connor sees with a different eye than, than most of us. Um, and I think that by reading her over and over again, you come to understand more and more to see the world as she sees it and to find meaning in, in ugliness. But I don't know that I understand exactly what she was getting at um, with her equating the deformity of the child um, with, with um, you know, the communion of saints, et cetera. I want to come back to your phrase, meaning of ugliness. Lisa, you wrote such a beautiful uh, comment on the geranium. Thank you so much. So it really did finish my half ideas as I wrote to you about it. Uh, what do you, what do you think about this, these uh, pages from the introduction to memoir of Marianne? Um, I came in a little bit late, so I'm not sure exactly what some of the earlier quotations. Well, were, the one I'm, I'm interested in tenderness leads to, to terror. Tender tenderness when, when the cut off from its source, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Well, I think that's I think that's inevitable. I think she's absolutely right, and I think it's inevitable because if you if you you can't know what love is if you don't know God, if you deny that He exists, or that you if you claim that all those who claim to know Him are somehow the problem with the world, um, what you wind up with is the opposite of love. You know, you you evil. Uh, hatred, uh, dissension, division, um, every kind of, you know, human evil, uh, crimes against humanity become the norm. Couldn't Aristotle love friend? Couldn't Aristotle have a friendship? I mean, he, you know, defined friendship pretty well, I think. He, he, just, he defined friendship pretty well, but, but he had only, um, I mean, these are the limitations of philosophy, I think. Is you only know and that limitation is what? from from you know you only know human nature you don't know the supernatural aspect of uh, of our nature you can only know the natural part of our nature. Um, is, is natural love worthy of anything? I mean, is no? Oh, it is. It is, but yeah. but if you try to cut it off from its source, which is not in our nature, it's it's in the God who gave us our nature. Um, and if if you try to um, eradicate that 
that that source, um, then I, I think you're going to run into inevitable. Well, like problems. the misfit, the misfit eradicated it. The misfit. He tried, <laughs> and he look what he did. <laughs> you know, he said, "It's Carolyn, no, it's no were, pleasure in life, but being me." That's you know? right, Carolyn. You were, you were chatting something about sentiment. What did and then. Claire was going, yeah. So what what were you saying? Well, I had heard the expression that sentiment or sentimentality Same led thing. to the concentration camps, uh, sort of like um, a secular empathy, which is not rooted in any um, real love and, and not rooted in faith. Tenderness wants to either ignore suffering or uh, eliminate it. Tenderness thinks that suffering is the first and final issue in ethics. Right. So you remove suffering from somebody and you have done the most good for them that you can. What have you? No. Well, no. Okay. Was that you, Robert, saying no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? I, uh, I see Why? this. I see this so much. I, I had to uh, get off of uh, social media as a penance for some of my sins, and and I saw it so much there. But I see it in my work. I uh, work with the San Francisco Department of Health, and I see uh, two two hundred dollar a night uh, homeless people in a hotel with the fentanyl dealers right outside because it, it's harm reduction. And I, I see you know people yeah. in in old. Um, you know, in their last days on uh, on drugs that prevent them from, uh, you know, making their peace with God. They just go into the night uh, pain-free, but uh, without any uh, chance to repent or to, to contemplate, uh, you know, the, the gate that they're going to be going through. I, I once made a speech at Fordham where I called, um, what was that first mood drug drug back in the 80s? Ecstasy was taken. What was it? Ecstasy. No, no. Makes you peaceful. Uh, Prozac. Prozac. Thank you. I made a speech where I said to take Prozac is like getting a, uh, a lobotomy because what you've done is you've eliminated suffering from your life, but the suffering is has the function of leading you in directions it presents opportunity for choices and it's a it's an alarm system as it were and i had the uh, local fox guys in my office at fordham the next day wanting to do video of it uh i mean i you know is it a lobotomy well may you know partially but the point and the point i was trying to make is that uh, suffering has a central role, especially in Christianity. I mean, come on. How can you even conceive of the Christian life without suffering? I mean, is it not true, Bill, that uh, Christ calls us to greater suffering, to embrace it, and not to not to love people in order to relieve their suffering, but to love people in order to lead them toward what is good? Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. He says, he says, take up your cross. I mean, yeah, all 
all of the things that he says, uh, he doesn't promise warm and fuzzies. <laughs> he promises suffering is what, yeah. It, but it's but it's not meaningless suffering, right? Well, he he said the greatest love is when uh, a man lays down his life for a friend. Like you yeah. give up that your total life for someone. That's the greatest thing you can do. Uh, Stan, when I wrote the book on happiness that I just talked about, I I ended up writing three chapters on suffering because I realized that the critique I was doing of contemporary psychological versions of happiness. All my critique revolved around the treatment of suffering in, in the power positive thinking crowd, uh, which was one of the first American movements to try to eliminate suffering, and in the drug crowd, uh, and in the, you know, escapist, you know, let's, let's go to Tahiti and forget about it crowd. Uh, have you ever, Stan, have you... Has anything ever forced you to think theoretically about the role of suffering in your life? <laughs> um, I have sat by scores of bedsides of people who have been drugged out of their minds with popsicles, with little sponges that are dipped in drugs that make people oblivious to what's going on in their passing. Um, and I have vowed that that will not be the case, that whatever happens, I will, I will see it with my eyes wide open. Um, I know that people want to alleviate suffering, but there's meaning in suffering. And if, if, if life and, and particularly scripture teaches us anything is that suffering is not only meaningful, but it's redeemable. Um, even you know, your I, I, suffering can be even be redemptive for other people, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I, I'm not I'm not crazy about our word terror. Um, in in a Conradian context, I, I almost wish she had said horror. That that there uh, there is something sublime about something that is terrible. You know that that and and I understand that she meant terror as. Um, Terror of of movements and 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 that sort of thing, but but that abject horror of facing suffering that has been detached from meaning is, I, I think, the essence of. Um, and she's striking at when she talks about suffering as something that should not be separated from truth. Art of Darkness, as I said last week, was the book that woke me up to things that I, in literature and philosophy and film, that I was, had been chasing me around and I didn't want to. Okay, now we're going to enter the world of the stories. Uh, and we're going to start with, I think the, not the easiest one, but the one that is easy, easy for us to, um, to go with. And that is a late encounter with the enemy. Did anyone else, when they be, when they started this this story, were you? Did this particular story from Flannery O'Connor no less surprise you with the sort of basic setup? Because it really surprised me. 
I did. I wasn't. Ex- I mean, I don't know if, if I ever read the story. I don't remember it. But I the, just the basic setup of a 104 year old general, a, quote, not really a general, fake general, who had fought in the Civil War in some capacity they couldn't even remember. A 61 year old daughter getting her bachelor's degree at the age of 61, and who wants wants him to live long enough to sit on the dais while she graduates in his general's uniform, his fake general's uniform, so she can show everyone what is behind her, not behind them, right? Uh, Jill, did it surprise you? Well, I'm not familiar enough with Flannery O'Connor to say that it surprised me, um, but I, I found the whole thing so interesting that um, he was supposed to be sort of the image of history, yet he didn't even acknowledge history. So remember the death of his own son in the Spanish American yeah, War. Yeah, yeah. And, who and was I it? was yeah. Oh, who was ahead. it on the uh, website said that this story re, uh, reminded her of problems in education? Who, who was it that said that? That was me, Amy. <laughs> I Amy. agree with you, but what? Tell me what, what? From what angle did you see that? From all the angles, definitely from the history. But um, first of all, the fact, like you said, she was. 62 years old and just getting her bachelor's in, in, in education, right? The education degree. But it, it was very interesting why she wanted her grandfather um, behind her. It's page 253 in my, um, in the big collected works book, but it's about the third paragraph, I think. Um, she wanted to hold her head very high as if she were saying, see him, see him, my kin, all you upstarts. So she's calling all her fellow graduates and teachers, I guess, upstarts, glorious, upright old man standing for the old traditions, dignity, honor, courage, see him. Like that was like, she was screaming this in her sleep, right? She was, and to me, I, I was thinking about that, like, um, you know, in our classical liberal education, right? That's kind of what I'm trying to give to my kids and stuff like that. But that's very good. Like we want you know, to give them the tradition, pass on the traditions and, you know, think about our history and our past. We should remember our past. Um, it's just so ironic, though, because, you know, obviously the grandfather didn't care about the history or the past and what he stood for. Well, he was but burdened. I, he was he was burdened by it. Right. Right. And, it he, was, and, and my question to you is, Amy, is that when he grips his sword oh, so yeah. hard that it goes to the bone. Mm-hmm. It 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 appears to me in my reading of it that he suddenly sees over the top of the of the past. He momentarily escapes from the past that's surging for him in the form of these black robed graduates, and he dies. And is that is that a moment of grace? No, <laughs> I think so. I mean, I. I mean, thought, I mean, come on, is it or isn't it? No, no, no. I thought no. of Hebrews four twelve, like the word of God being the sword sharper than a two edged sword going through between the bone and marrow. Like that was his judgment. He was being judged. Like that was him with the black robes, all that kind of by his past, what he didn't remember, what he didn't want to think about. Uh, Robert he, Robert says, uh, Amy, that hit, grace was not accepted there. Robert, oh, yeah, I don't know. 
Yeah, that's that's what struck me. I mean, you, you can mull these over and, you know, they, they keep you thinking. And that's, that's the great thing about her. But I, I felt that he uh, he all these years, you know, we live and our life is an opportunity to come closer to God. And he lived all these years, but it did him no good. And in the end, he wasn't prepared for the final onslaught, the real battle. The, the So that that's how I interpreted it. But Ray, what it it seems to me that a lot of lack of loss of memory is what happens to everybody over 90. I mean, I have a 97 year old mother and she barely remembers stuff. And she only remembers things like being featured in the premiere of Gone with the Wind in Atlanta in 1939, right? <laughs> yeah. Which he never got over. He said, What's the quote? It says, uh, since then, his life had not been very interesting. And he's constant. Remember all the pretty girls that surrounded him. Yeah. And I mean, you can't really blame him for that. Right. Can you? I mean, I mean, Vivian Lee walking by and, you know, <laughs> looking at your uniform. Uh, not all the glitters stuff. is gold. Huh? Not all that glitters is gold, you know. <laughs> we, we, we grasping onto the wrong things, you know, not remembering his own son, you know, I mean, it, it or his uh, wife or his wife. Right. Right. It, it's not simply a case of amnesia, though. He he chooses not. He he hates history. He doesn't want to think about the past. He does, it doesn't bother him that he doesn't even remember if he had a wife. Right. Um, these are things he has been trying to avoid. He wants to live in the present moment and only if it's this kind of fantasy that was given to him at this movie premiere. This is is a a fantasy version of him where he says, and there I was with those two pretty girls, you know, with my arms around their waist. And his daughter's going, no, actually, there weren't any pretty girls, you know, letting them put you put your arms around your waist. Uh, And they didn't give you the the uniform this man gave you. Lisa, hold on. Alex, will you would you defend me here? I mean, there's something in that moment when he, you know, squeezes on his sword so hard it cuts him to the bone. Yeah, is he, that is that just is that is that a uh, some meaning rejection? Well, he, uh, I, I get the the, the central um, the central contrast between processions and parades. He likes a parade, which is a secular. Uh, Hollywood type thing. He likes the pretty girls, uh, but the procession is what breaks in on him, and it breaks in on him through is the hole in his head. It, it's the it's the procession that brings back uh, words to life that he didn't want to hear again. Uh, uh, the words began to stir in his head as if they were trying to wrench themselves out of place and come to life, and he um, he resists it. But uh, Grace doesn't um, act because you you ask it to, it works on you because it is powerful. It operates apart from the operator. And I think in the end, uh, that music drilling down into the hole in his head is a sign that he's transformed. But, uh, that's, that's my, that's my, yeah, we need, we need to address the hole in his head. Uh, he arrives there and he's, he suddenly feels there were a little hole beginning to widen the top of his head. And 
evidently this is not something he had experienced before. And the longer he sits there, the more that he's aware of this hole. And uh, Claire, what do you think? You've you've dealt a lot with older people and with dying. And uh, what is your reading about what is happening to him during, you know, what is this hole about? And why did he clench the sword? You've dealt with a lot of elderly people. I have. What do you think? Do you know what's happening to him? Are, are you meaning you think it was uh, dementia? Is that what you mean? I, you're not, you're not going to give me a scientific. This is not about a scientific uh, diagnosis. Yeah. What's going on with him? Ann Roundtree, what's going on with him? I think that he was having a stroke. And I think that Flannery is describing <laughs> what, was it, what was it feeling like in his head. Stan, you've got a you've got a response. Okay, I see two things going on. One, you grip a sword for one reason, and that reason is to bring yourself back to some sort of reality. That that you want to feel something real, you want to feel something going on, you want to know that you are present in the moment. A hole in your head signifies that something is getting away. It may be a stroke, it may be a dementia, who knows what it is, but it's something that is leaving you. And the contrast with the gripping of the sword is something that you would rather cling to. Yeah. Okay. Smart. I thought I like I like that. Uh, but let's. I put this uh, this that story up on the screen, and let's uh, let's look at some of the things I've highlighted. He hears the speaker saying, "We forget our past. We won't remember our future. Remember, and it will be well for, and it w- will be as well." for we won't have one. Kind of stupid, actually. Um, but he heard these, these words, and it says he had forgotten history and didn't intend to remember it again. He'd forgotten the name and face of his wife and the names and faces of his children, or even if he had had a wife and children, and he had forgotten the names of places and the places themselves and what happened to happened to them. But then notice what happens right afterward. I- can I say something? And I was, I was, I was trying to, <clears throat> I was trying to remember exactly what it was because my entire family, everybody used to use it. You need that, like you need a hole in your head. Flannery lived in a time in Georgia in the South when that was used all the time. It meant that you didn't need whatever you're searching for at all. Um. Do you relate to that? Well, I want to, you tell me what you think after I read this next, okay. next passage. Yeah. He was considerably irked by the hole in his head. He had not expected to have a hole in his head at this <laughs> event. It was the slow black music that had put it there, probably Elgar, you know. Da, 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 da. Okay. Uh, and though most of the music had stopped outside, there was still a little of it in the hole, going deeper and moving around in his thoughts, letting the words be heard into the dark places of his brain. He heard the words Chickamauga, Shiloh, Johnston, Lee, and he knew he was inspiring all these words that meant nothing to him. He wondered if he had been a general at Chickamauga or at Lee. Of course, Lee was a per- not a place, a person. 
Then he tried to see himself and the, and the horse mounted in the middle of a float of beautiful girls. There we are again, being driven slowly through downtown Atlanta. Instead, the old world's words began to stir in his head as if they were trying to wrench themselves out of place and come to life. And going down to what I have in, in rose color, he couldn't protect himself from the words and attend to the procession too, and the words were coming at him fast. He felt that he was running backwards and the words were coming at him like musket fire, just escaping him, but getting nearer and nearer. As the music swelled toward him, the entire past opened up on him out of nowhere until his body riddled in a thousand places with sharp stabs of pain and he fell down. Of course, in his mind, he fell down. He uh, sees his wife's face, succession of uh, places again, rushed at him as if the past were the only future now and he had to endure it. Then suddenly he saw that the black procession was almost on him. He recognized it and for it had been dogging. He recognized it for it had been dogging all his days. He made such a desperate effort to see over it. That's what I was referring to early and, and find out what comes after the past that his hand clenched the sword until the blade touched bone. Could I, could I ask something real quick? Um, and something just kind of hit me. The, he's saying the, the words and the music were trying to get, you know, to get, to get at him. He was remembering the old, the old words began to stir in his head. And it brought me back to earlier in the story when he was up on the stage. The only thing he can remember was when he was up on the stage at that premiere. And what did he do? He heard they played the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And he's saying that, and I, to me, I think he's, that's what's trying to get into him. And, he's, and if you think about the words to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's an abolitionist song. That was a that was a directly abolitionist song to a poem by an abolitionist abolitionist poet writer, um, or maybe you know maybe it was just one more memory of the war in general. But uh, so I want to know. So uh, Alex says this is a way of him to just get away from all of this flooding through his mind, his awareness of the little hole clutches the sword and he dies and of course the utterly grotesque last image uh john wesley that crafty scout had bumped him out the back way and rolled him at high speed down a flagstone pass and was waiting now with the corpse in the long line at the coca-cola machine alex yeah i just wanted i just want to do uh conclude that I, as he, as much as he resisted this uh, procession, which would bring him back to remembering his wife, remembering a son, uh, remembering his life and history, uh, that desperate effort to see over it is not just uh, resigning himself to what's coming, but actually looking for it and trying to, trying to meet it. So I think it's more than just, um, 
resistance and, and the operation of grace. I think he's cooperating with it at the end. Well, that, I mean, I, that I may, you know, I thought to myself, deal, you're making too much of that. How could all this whole story lead up to that moment and then be redemptive? Bill, you have thoughts? Is, are we, are Alex and I completely off base here? I, it, that image of the blade touching the bone reminded me of uh, Christ crucified and the soldier piercing, um, po- possibly touching the bone as it pierced the heart of Jesus. But that's, that's one thing I thought of. Dave, got an opinion? On the uh, on the grace topic, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not super used to reading kind of Catholic fiction writers, so this might be. You better get used you know, to it, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> is um, I mean, to to me, like his kind of character is about someone who is kind of attached to material things and holding. He's a narcissist. On to anything. Is somebody somebody Chad yeah. is a narcissist? Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so, no. like, for me, like, you know, what what I thought we were seeing was, you know, first uh, the hole, the hole in the head is, you know, that familiar, you know, something uh, I think you experience, you know, when you experience when you're called on to kind of speak in public all of a sudden, and you uh, you have to kind of struggle to kind of get a grip on your thoughts and kind of keep yourself together. Right. And, you know, you can imagine that, you know, if if you think of death as a kind of disintegration, which for, you know, an atheist, that's kind of what it's supposed to be, right? Like sort of a disappearing into nothingness. But that's kind of what this was about. So what this is, is this is death without grace. This is death without, you know, the habit of prayer. It's I'm just, looking uh, here for, Teresa, do you have an opinion? Um, well, I can't get over the idea that the words and the procession are like an art. It's like bullets in an army. Right. So I feel like the, he, if it's a late encounter with the enemy, we have to assume that he never really encountered the enemy, not even when he fought in the war. So if he's encountering the enemy now and he's being hit by these bullets, which are the words and he's getting these holes, he's dying. Um, I hope it's a moment of redemption. It really seems as though seeing the faces, while it's not framed as something particularly redemptive, could be redemptive. He's actually seeing a face for the first time um, in the whole story. And hopefully, you know, the gripping of the sword, I just, all I could see was a young boy who's in the throes of death in a battle, because that's where we're, I think we're supposed to see him. So I have a lot of hope for him. Lisa. Well, I don't have any hope for him. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that. Uh, You knew that. (laughs) Um, No, he has been running. The past is something he has been running from his whole life. Maybe something happened back there, you know, in one of those wars. But but I think he's a total phony. And that's one of the reasons he doesn't want to look at the past is because he would have to face the truth about himself. And he didn't want to think about the future either. He was just going to live until he, you know, he just could keep living as long as he could. And, and that was all he was really interested in. Uh, this, I want to go back to this, this um, thing that the graduation speaker said that really started this hole in his head when he was mentioning all these battle sites from the, from the wars, uh, Shiloh and Chickamauga and these other things. 
Um, and he says this thing which sounds stupid on the face of it. Um, let me find it here. Um, oh. He says, uh, if we forget our past, we won't remember our future. And it'll be just as well for we won't have one. Well, on the face of it, it sounds stupid. How do you remember the future? Something that hasn't happened yet. But if you recall that uh, memory is, is not just um, a recollection of past events, but it's also mindfulness, being remaining mindful of something. Remember, O oh man, that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. I think this is the memento mori, is, and this is what sets all this off, is he realizes uh, you know, that that hole in his head is him coming to the re realization that he can't run from these things forever. And they are catching up with him. And he is running like the Dickens to try to get away from him, but he's not going to make it. And so I think at the end, uh, no, I think he gets trapped in the very past that he has been trying his whole life uh, to run away from. So I don't think I don't think Flannery O'Connor is trying to give us hope that this man is transformed in his last moment. I think we're meant to see that he, he had, he's had all of those opportunities and he has rejected every single one of them. And now it's catching up with it. So a few minutes left before we move to the next story. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't get over the clenching of the sword causing himself pain. Uh, is that just a, is that a result of a, uh, of a death rattle, so to speak, or do people, when they die, do they stiffen up and grab something nearby? I mean, do they, uh, is it what Alex originally suggested? And that is a desire to return to reality. I thought he was gripping the sword because he was facing the enemy now, death. Can you say two more sentences about that? Well, I had a, I read the story twice. I read it a few weeks ago and I read it again last night because this was one of the stories that sort of fell flat for me in, in her uh, collection, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Um, but I don't like to dismiss anyone's stories, um, especially someone of genius. So in rereading it last night, I tried to figure out what that title really meant because I didn't know what it meant when I first read it. Um, and I had gotten the idea that the enemy was history, um, that he was running from a past um, and only wanted to be, you know, in the midst of pleasure, you know, the beautiful girls and, you know, uh, up on the, on the stage. But here he was in his uniform, a proud moment. He was supposed to be in, you know, the, the, the shining light but he's being wheeled back and forth. Someone else is taking the bow for him. And now he's, I got that the idea that he was having some sort of a heat stroke because he was sitting out in the sun and that's when he started to feel that hole in his head. So his senses are a little off. He sees the, the people coming in, but they're just a sea or a river, you know, amassing in, in black and he's hearing someone speak and words are coming up from his past, things that he hadn't remembered because he had pushed them aside for his pleasure. But now here he is at the end facing death and it should be a great moment for him, but he's scared. He's a coward and he's sitting there helpless fighting this battle in his mind, gripping that sword because he knows 
that death has come for him. That was my, uh, that, that's what I got from this final. Alex, what do you think? Well, I would, I would just typing it out. I'd say, I, I, I would say that from having tried to avoid all the pain and including up to the bullet, the word bullets, the pain of the, 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 uh, the hundred bullets or whatever coming at him, he gets so engaged by this desperate effort to see, to finally have the encounter with the enemy and see beyond and above it, that he doesn't even notice he's clenched the sword. It's not a purposeful thing. It's that he's so engaged with this desperate effort that it, the pain doesn't even, you know, it, I think you, you could go back to the crucifixion. There's something higher going on that, um, that, that, that clenching is incidental. It's not, it's not on purpose. Okay, Lisa, we're going to give you the final word on this story. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I think there is there is some ambiguity, but I would have to say that that the the very grotesqueness of the final image suggests that um, we we should not be holding out a lot of hope for this man um, in his final moment. Uh, I mean, she certainly. Since the geranium, she has learned how to get her freaky on and and, uh, and give us these these really grotesque images that that are so weird that they're almost laughable. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think in the end he he is uh, he he has that moment where he could be transformed. He could turn and face the past. He didn't have to run from it. He could have. He could have said, "Okay, you got me. Uh, let's 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 just deal with this." But he doesn't. He goes down, um, running away. Uh, so I, I think the 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 thing about the sword was just a kind of a final um, a spasm, uh, and it and it certainly makes the final image even more grotesque that him there. Uh, a corpse in the in the chair with John Wesley having his Coca-Cola, well, you know. You know, there's something uh you know, the fact that and and Bill, I want you to read that verse you put in a second, but something about the way she worked in the premiere of Gone with the Wind. She was not a fan of Gone with the Wind as a novel, <laughs> not a fan of the movie. It was fake, it was the fakes out. And it was the uh you know, Hollywood version, and uh, this isn't the South of uh, genuine heroes or uh, genuine virtue, or if there is such thing. So, um, you know, maybe he, what he, the thing that he held on to Titus was the thing that killed him, uh, his uh, his vanity. Uh uh, Robert, what was that? Uh, tell me what that uh, verse was you put up there, because I couldn't see the whole thing. Uh, verse. Well, I, I just pointed out uh, the uh, that he in death, his uh, eyes were wide open. Uh, he was sitting fixed and fierce, his eyes wide open. So I'm uh, I'm holding out hope. Uh, but I think Flannery is probably letting us uh not know, you know, uh, so we, but the important thing is to, to see that this, uh, that there is this, uh, 
as St. Louis de Montfort uh, says, this final uh, battle between the, the evil one and, and our Lord, which side will we choose? Okay. Um, brilliant discussion, everybody. Thank you so much. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.